So are you excited about baptisms? They're always great. Amen. So the people that are going to be baptized today are not going to get baptized because they say, they're saying, we have, we're trying to get right with God. They are getting baptized because they are right with God. They're wearing a t-shirt that says all in. And what they mean by that is they are all into the gospel. They're not, they're not saying we are all in because we're perfectly obeying Christ right now. They're not saying that. They're saying we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're applying it to our lives and we are saved expressing this amazing grace that God has for us. That's what's gonna happen here. And I'm excited for them and I'm excited to watch it myself because it always inspires me. And uh, so we're, we're gonna get there in just a few minutes. Um, but today, before we get there, I wanna, I wanna talk to the people that are gonna get baptized, but I wanna talk to everybody in the room. So after you get baptized, where do you go from here? How do I live my life? What does God want from me uh, in relationship to the, to the Christian life? And I'm gonna suggest, this is not gonna be an exhaustive study by any means, but I'm gonna suggest that You'll do well if there are three things that you cherish all the days of your life. If you'll come out of this water and you'll start cherishing three things, I think those three things will allow you to have the kind of relationship with God that you're desiring to have and that will honor him in every way. So that applies to all of us here, right? Amen, is that true? So let me just jump right into it and uh, let's just see where the Lord takes us today. The first thing that I should, pers that I should cherish if I am going to walk with God is that I should, I should cherish the pursuit of God himself, that I should cherish the idea that I'm pursuing God with all my heart, mind, and soul. Jeremiah chapter number 29, verse 13 says, if you look for me wholeheartedly, you'll find me. When you seek after God with all of your heart, when you pursue after him with all of your heart, the Bible says, God says that you're going to find me. So I'm gonna suggest that what we should do is every day cherish the idea of pursuing God. And this is what I've learned in life, that what we crave, we pursue. Have you noticed that? What we crave, we pursue. We think nothing of getting in a car and driving 10 hours one way to Disneyland, right? And you know, then you know, paying uh, an, literally an arm and a leg to get through the doors, right? And then, you know, then all day long, you're getting someone who is smashing your ankles with a, you know, the, with a baby carriage type thing. And, and, uh, and so, and we do, and then we drive, get in our car and we drive 10 hours back. We think nothing of that. And we call that fun. We spend, a, you know, a fortune doing that. And yet when we talk about serving God, we don't have the same enthusiasm on a daily basis to get up and say, God, whatever it takes today, I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to pursue you. So I'm gonna suggest that pursuing God represents three things, it involves three things. First of all, it represents pursuing God through his word. How do I pursue God? Every day I get up and I open the Bible and I say, okay, God, what do you have in it for me today? Now I'm gonna suggest a way to re read the Bible that will actually bring life to it. And so this might be weird to you, but so hear me out before you, before you turn it down. Here's an interesting way to look at the Bible as you study it. Instead of looking at it, just looking at it for answers, and that's what we often do, is we often open the Bible thinking, I need some answers, God. I think what we should be looking for are the questions that the Bible proposes to us. I think we should flip the, the switch on that the script on that. 
And I think we should look at the Bible. And as you're reading the Bible, you should notice in your mind and in your heart, what are the questions that the Bible asks of us? Let me give you some examples so you know kind of what you're looking for. A question would be like, what does it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That is a great question, right? Hello, let me ask that question again. <laughs> what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Amazing question, right? Yeah. That's a really important question, and that's found within the Bible. Here's another question that you could look at. Uh, if God is for us, who, can be, who would be against us? Who could stand against us? Great question. What is truth? Another question in the Bible? What is truth? That is a great question. And take note of the times that God looks at us and asks questions in the Bible. And then as you're thinking about that during the course of your day, as you're falling asleep at night, instead of counting sheep, maybe you should be thinking about some of the questions that you found within the Word of God. And I think what that does is makes the Bible come alive and makes it extremely interesting. And, and oh, by the way, along the way, I'm going to get some questions answered. And I've, I've found that true in my own life. So a couple other questions. How can a man be born again when he is old? Nicodemus asked that question. How can a man be born again when he is old? Or who is my neighbor? God says we're supposed to love our neighbor. Who is my neighbor is a question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? All those things, and I could go on and on. We could do a, an entire series for an entire year and just look at the questions that the Bible asks of us. And, you know, we would not exhaust them because they're, they're a myriad of questions. So the first thing that I should do is that I should pursue God. If I'm pursuing God, I should pursue him through the word of God. Are you willing to start doing that? Amen? Amen. Second thing that I should do if I'm pursuing God is that I should pursue God through prayer. Prayer is a very misunderused tool that God has given to us. Prayer isn't about changing God's mind. Prayer is about connecting to God in relationship, having a two-way conversation with him. Listening is a part of prayer. Speaking is a part of prayer. So I should pursue God not just through the reading of the word of God and looking at those questions. I should pursue God through the idea of, of prayer itself. And prayer isn't, you know, prayer isn't something that you have to do for an hour a day. In fact, I would rather pray one sentence to God with the right spirit than a thousand sentences to God. It's not about a time frame. It's about having a relationship with God where you're open to listening and hearing and speaking to God. It's about, it's about a two-way conversation with a living God. And then if I'm pursuing God, I, I should pursue God with a humble faith that I should, I should realize as I come before God that I don't have most of the answers. In fact, I have very little of the answers. And as I'm pursuing God through his word, as I'm pursuing God through prayer, I should approach it with, an, with a humble faith, realizing God has so much to say to me and teach me and disciple me in that I, I, I have a lifetime to learn about the things of the living God. So I, should, I should, should pursue God with the idea of a humble spirit, realizing that I am not the expert. I am not, I'm not the God expert. I am just somebody who is a student. I'm someone who is a follower. I am called a disciple of Jesus. That's how I should pursue God with this spirit of humility, not with the spirit of trying to convince others of my way, but of, of a spirit of saying, God, 
teach me your word and I shall know you. That's the spirit of humility that God wants from us. Here's why I pursue God, by the way. Maybe I should have started with this. Here's why I pursue God. I pursue God because what I've discovered in life is that I settle for things that are so mundane when God has things for me that are so amazing. So it would be like this. Let me give you a word picture to help you understand that. It would be like you and I uh, settling on swimming in a swamp with the alligators as opposed to swimming in a pristine pool where, there is, where you, there's clarity and there's, there's refreshment and, there, and you can see the bottom. And, and that's, that's the kind of thing that we settle on. We settle on a swamp when God wants to give us pristine waters. And that's why I pursue God, because God has something far better for me than I could ever imagine or ever trying to accomplish in my own life. So that's why I pursue God. So I cherish God through pursuing him with all of my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul. And you could never exhaust that. So that's a starting part. That's where I start. And I, I continue that until I take my last breath. What else should I cherish? If I'm walking with God, what else should I cherish in my life? Well, I should cherish right relationships. Not only a pursuit of God, but God ties my relationship with him with other people. So with that in mind, how do I pursue a relationship with other people that is honoring to God? Well, let me show you a verse of scripture. Ephesians chapter four, verse two says this. Always, you might wanna underline that in your Bible if you're taking notes. Always be humble and gentle, especially in the parking lot at Grace Church. <laughs> no, it doesn't say that. I just inserted that to see if you're paying attention, all right? So I guess you were. So, but it says here, this is not a suggestion. This isn't something that you can just go away and say, well, that's a nice thing. Jesus is saying this. If you wanna have a great relationship with me, it's tied to how you treat other people very definitely tied to how you treat other people. So always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults. Because of your love, make every effort to keep yourself united in the spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So let me just suggest a couple of things. This involves three things. If I'm, if I'm cherishing right relationships, it involves three things. First of all, it involves the idea of humility when I am wronged, a sense of humility when someone does something against me, a spirit of humility as opposed to a sense of arrogance and pride and how dare you say that to me? How dare you speak that way? How dare you act that way? So a sense of humility is how you pursue others with this peace that God is talking about. Humility when I am wronged. And then forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness when it's necessary. So I mete out forgiveness in a very powerful way. And uh, so humility in, in life is such an important thing. So it's humility not only when I'm wrong, but it's humility as I wrong others, admitting my mistakes, admitting when I'm wrong and admitting that I don't have all the answers. And then when I come to that point when I realize that I've wronged others and others have wronged me, then I choose the road to humility and that road to humility always ends up at the throne of God. It is really a very powerful thing. So forgiveness, let's talk about forgiveness for just a second. So how many of you have had an anger in your spirit 
in the past. I'm not saying now. Maybe some of you have it now. How many of you have had an anger in your spirit for a long time? You know, say five years, 10 years, you've been angry at somebody. Somebody's done you wrong. So let me ask you this question. How is that working for you? I mean, is it, is it helping? Is it helping you get better? Somehow, some way you think because you're mad, because you're bitter, because you're frustrated and you're vo- verbalizing that to other people, somehow you think that is gonna help you get better or feel better about yourself? It doesn't work, my friends, it doesn't work. Here's what I find fascinating. There was a lady that uh, had a lawsuit against a surgeon and a hospital because they had left something inside of her when they did the surgery. And she got sick and almost died and, and went back to the hospital. They discovered, you know, what they had left inside of her. They pulled it out. And uh, true story, she launched a lawsuit against the surgeon and against the, against the hospital. And the, the doctor didn't have to do this. He had lawyers that told him not to do this. He showed up at her doorstep knocked on the door and said, hey, I'm, you know, you, I know you know who I am. I'm the surgeon that did surgery on you. And I just want you to know I made a mistake and I am so sorry. I didn't mean to. It was a mistake. I, I, but I, it cost you dearly. And I am just sorry. Every lawyer in the book would say, don't ever admit when you're wrong. And I'm saying to you, the Bible says just the opposite. Then what happened is that she dropped the lawsuit against, against the surgeon, against the hospital. And here's what's interesting is according to research, when doctors admit their mistakes, there's a 30% chance, less chance of them being sued. That's what research shows. When you just admit, and the Bible says it all along. When you make a mistake, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever had an experience where you uh, have lied to protect yourself? Anybody like that? Come on now, I'm looking at, I'm looking everywhere in the auditorium. (laughs) I've done it regularly. I'm just gonna say, I've done it regularly. And and I'm just saying it doesn't work. It doesn't, you know, and here's here's how we should respond. The very next time that you find yourself lying to somebody because you're protecting your reputation, why don't you try this and just see how it works? Why don't you stop and just simply say, hey, I'm lying to you right now just to protect myself. Will you forgive me? (laughs) We do it regularly, don't we? I mean, that would break uh, this, you know, a wrong habit out of our lives. I'm just saying what the Bible says is that humility, if I'm going to pursue relationships with other people in a way that draws God to me and in in a way that I draw close to God, if I'm going to do that, I have to walk in humility. I have to forgive when I've been wronged and I have to, and I have to confess when I'm being the, when I'm being the one who's perpetrating the evil. When those two things happen, it becomes a very powerful thing in our life. And then another way that we um, pursue relationships with others is we have what is called grace-based love. Grace-based love. We pursue people with the idea, with a lens of grace, as opposed to the lens of judgment. So, so often we're pretty, pretty judgmental people, right? 
So we drive by people and we judge them all the time. We, things happen on our job, our boss. We look at our bosses sometimes and think, if I, was in, if I was in charge here, things would be a lot different. So we approach life from the lens of saying, not grace, but law. So one of the things that helps us draw close to one another and, and therefore to God is having what I would call a grace-based love for others. So let's talk about what that would look like. So I'm going to tell you a true story. There is a judge in L.A. And he is in the, in the uh, he's an active judge. And he basically has a, a practice that, you know, you know, he's a judge over felony, felony crimes. And so he sees the worst of the worst of the worst in his courtroom every day. And so in that process, uh, this is what he decided to do. He realized, you know, my, my judgments aren't making anybody better. Sending people to prison isn't helping our culture. And so this is what he did. He decided, he lives in L.A., he decided that he was going to go down to Skid Row. Anybody familiar with Skid Row in L.A.? It is a very dangerous place to be. He went down there. He started going down there. He's been doing this for years now. And you can Google this and find his name and you can see what he does. And we're going to see a video in just a minute about, about the results of that. He went down there, instead of handing food out, instead of, instead of preaching the gospel, you know, both would have been good things, right? There would have been admirable things to do that. He didn't do either one of those things. You know what he did? He went down there and went through the camps, went through the people on the street, and he said, hey, I'm going to start coming down here every morning, and I want to know who would like to run with me. So he, has a, he started a running club on Skid Row, and every morning he gets up before dawn, he shows up on Skid Row, and he invites people to run with him. And literally hundreds over the, year have begun to, over the years have begun to run with him, and it has transformed people's lives. Just because... He's meeting people where they are without judgment. He's giving them, he's, he's inferring worth on their life by his own time. Not, without, you know, not with judgment, but without judgment. Just saying, hey, would you like to be my running partner? Would you like to come and run with me? I'm telling you, that's the greatest example that I know of what it looks like to have grace-based love in your life. Instead of doing things like pole vaulting over mouse manure. Everybody, anybody ever done that? Now, you know what I mean by that? You and I make mountains out of things that don't need to be made mountains of. That's not grace-based love. That is not how God functions. Or uh, look for the best and not the worst in people's lives. That would be a way that you could have grace-based love. Or look for the opportunity to bless people and not curse them, even though they don't deserve it. Grace-based love is taking people that don't deserve by nature, what you're doing for them and doing it anyway in spite of their response to you, in spite of what others say about you, because others will judge you for loving people where they are. And this is something that is so powerful, so life-changing. In the case of this judge, literally people have gotten college educations off of Skid Row because somebody loved them right where they were instead of preaching at them, instead of pitying them and giving them food. They just, they just, this judge started treating people, listen to this carefully, on Skid Row, he's a judge, started treating people as an equal. 
And it has transformed hundreds and hundreds of lives along the way. And I don't have time to tell you all the stories. We're going to watch a video of some folks that are telling you what's happened in their life because this judge took off his robe, put on his running shoes, and met people where they were as an equal. So watch this video. I'm five years sober, so it's my second chance at life. Has given me an opportunity to be a better person. We are there for each other, and it's not just running. Even like as I've gone through grief, you know, like having people still by your side, it's, it feels like family. Without it, I don't really know where I'd be. I keep coming back to Skid Row because of the people. Strong, persevering people. You don't overcome homelessness or alcohol or drug addiction without reaching really deep within you and finding some strength that you know you didn't have. I feel a sense of purpose now. I mean, going from hanging on to my sobriety to sponsoring other guys and, and leading other, that's what Judge Mitchell really encourages us to do, that, to be there for one another. It's an honor and a privilege to be part of this running club. It's something that's just greater than any one of us, and it makes me feel real proud. What gives your life purpose? What gives your life meaning? It is not the accumulation of things. It is the investment that you make in other people. So that investment that you make in other people isn't based at a superiority. Grace-based love means that I enter life with somebody else. I enter life with them as their equal. And I just serve them. And as I learn to serve them, God shows up. I'm just simply saying, you try this sometime, sometime uh, over a long period of time, you'll see that God shows up in your life in such, such powerful ways. Grace-based love is contrary to our natural response to life. It is. Our natural response to life is to put people at arm's length, to shove people away, to feel superior, to judge them. Grace-based love is what Jesus did when he incarnated himself into this world and he was born into abject poverty, went to the cross and died for you and me so that you and I could be made right with God. That's grace-based love. And then he turns around and he says, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. Grace-based love is different than any kind of love that you can see in the world because it is not based on doing it to feel good about yourself. It is just doing it because, because this is a person created in the image of God and I have the, I have the power to confer worth on their life just by being with them, just by being their friend. That's grace-based love. There's a third thing that I need to learn to cherish. And that third thing that I need to learn to cherish, and these three things, cherishing the pursuit of God, cherishing human relationships, cherishing the gospel, those three things. Not cherishing the gospel so that I can preach it to others, but preaching the gospel to myself every single day. Reminding myself of where I was and where I am. Reminding myself of the redemptive work that Jesus did in my own life. That is such an amazing, powerful thing. 
And it is such a humbling thing. Cherishing the gospel is not just a, a matter of devoting ourselves to preaching the gospel. It is appreciating the very, the very person of Jesus and what he did in my life every day. And it changes how you see others. It is from our own growing love for God that there's an outpouring of the gospel in our own lives. But it's recognizing the depth that God saved me from. So I want to tell you a story that helps you understand the gospel and how to cherish it. So about two weeks ago, my wife and I discovered that we had a resident in our garage. And this resident was a rat. Sorry to gross you out. I mean, it wasn't a little rat. It was a big rat and a tail on it like that long. And, uh, you know, I invited it to leave on several occasions. I went into the garage and I said, in the name of Jesus, get out of here. None of that worked. So I'm sorry to tell you, I resorted to poison. Sorry if that troubles you, but it's my house, not yours. And he was eating my food and, you know, living in my garage. And so I said, that's enough. I've had it. And my wife is a really unhappy, she does not like mice and rats. I'm just saying, doesn't like them. So as the husband of my, you know, of, of Judy and, you know, as a head of my home, I said, I got to take matters in my own hands. So I poisoned this thing, put out a little piece of, you know, really nice looking poison. And I watched him eat it every, I, I, I watched him eat it every day. But then what happened is, you know, which sucked for us, is that he died, but he died and hit himself. And so I'm right in the process of we had to move most of our stuff into our garage because we're redoing some of the things in our house because of some medical issues that I have. So we have to put, new, we have to put tile floor down. And so most of everything we own is in our garage. So this rat died in a very, very inconspicuous place. And for like five days, it stunk the daylights out of that garage. I'm not, you would walk in there and you'd have to hold your breath for you to walk through the garage because, you know, there was death in the garage. And, and so we searched for this thing, searched for this thing. And finally, my wife sends me a picture. She finds the rat and she sends me a picture of this dirty little rat. And, uh, and so I came home that afternoon and I said, okay, I'm going to take care of this rat. So I got a pair of pliers and dug this thing out and, you know, threw him in the trash can. And, and, uh, but here's the thing that I noticed is that it still stunk in my garage because death sometimes lingers on, right? And so for about four or five more days, my garage just stunk to high heavens. And eventually, after I got rid of the source, eventually every day I could say, okay, it's getting better. Every day after I got rid of the source, it, it started dissipating. And, and now you could go in my garage and you would never know that a mouse died or a rat died in, in, under my watch in that garage. And so as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking it really is a great picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because here's the reality. I was the problem. I was the problem. And for the problem to go away, 
I had to die. That's what the gospel is, by the way. Jesus comes and dies for us, but in our identification for, for, with him, listen to this very carefully because most Christians don't understand this. God then unites me. This is Romans chapter six. He then unites me with his greatest moment in his death, burial, and resurrection. So my life, which is hidden in Christ, died. That's what people are going to express in the baptismal waters today. When we take them down to the waters, that's our death with Christ. And they come up out of the waters as a new creation. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. Until the source is removed, my life still stinks. Until the source is removed, my life still stinks. So God put me to death spiritually so that now I can be healed and so that I can move forward with him and I can recognize his amazing grace in my own life. But before I can get there, I've got to recognize, and this is what we're bad at doing, we've got to recognize that we're the rat in the story. We're the villain in the story and God's the hero. And so I'm just simply saying this to you so that you hear this loud and clear is that when that happens, that what, that's what allows new life to take place inside of us. The old life has to die and the new life comes, comes about. The old life dies, new life comes about. That's the gospel. And so every day when I rehearse the gospel for my own life, I recognize Listen to me carefully. I recognize that I was the stink on this planet because of my own sin. And I recognize that God, by his grace, reached down into my life, reached down into my life and saved me a wretch and a ruin and a wreck. He saved me, not because of anything less than his love, wasn't anything less than that. It was his love. That's the story of the gospel in my life and in your life. And the more we rehearse that in our lives, the more we recognize that in our lives, the more that stink that we put out, that stink represents our behavior. The more that dissipates, the more that goes away. And pretty soon I have this life that's characterized by the good life. That's the gospel of Jesus in a nutshell. And when you recognize that in your own life, when you get that and then you rehearse that every day, it makes a major difference in how you behave. But here's what happens to a lot of Christians. They get the grace of God poured out in their life. And then they turn around and they judge others for being exactly the same way they were. When you get the gospel, when you get the gospel, it is life-changing and powerful and amazing. And it is what you need in your life every day. It's not what I had in my life, it's what I have in my life. I have the gospel. So let's celebrate today as people come forward and they get baptized. Lord God, thank you for this day. And I pray God that we will just honor you by honoring these folks that are getting baptized. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen.